Well, good evening. We're back again. Systematic Theology starting up once again. We're up to session 52 tonight, and we're continuing our look at redemption. Once again, redemption is God's work. It's God's project. And it's God's project of choosing a people for himself, accomplishing our redemption from sin, then applying that redemption to the elect. And we've been using a structure for this part of the study. It's to go through the logical order of God's application of salvation benefits to his people. How does God apply it? What is the logical order? And that logical order is called the ordo salutis. And that's just Latin for the order of salvation. Once again, it's printed in your notes. And yeah, different Reformed theologians, they differ a little bit slightly on the order, but not very much. Now we've covered this order of salvation all the way up to what you see in your notes is step 3a, and that is justification. This step is critical because justification, the doctrine of justification, is what divides true religion from false religion. The 17th century Puritan preacher Thomas Watson wrote this about how critical the doctrine of justification is. He wrote, justification is the very hinge and pillar of Christianity. An error about justification is dangerous, like a defect in a foundation. Justification by Christ is a spring of the water of life. To have the poison of corrupt doctrine cast into this spring is damnable. Now, a few studies ago, I gave a kind of introduction to this all-important subject of justification. And as a review, I'm going to read first from the book of Job, chapter 25. You know, man continually searches for the answer to the question that is posed several times in the book of Job. And this one I'm going to be reading from is from Job chapter 25, verse 4. The question here this time is posed by one of Job's friends, Bildad. How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? You know, Bill Dad's statement, it's a question, but also a lament in a way. Bill Dad compares the greatness and holiness of God to the smallness and sinfulness of man. The theologian J. Gresham Machen wrote, From beginning to end, the Bible is concerned to set forth the awful gulf that separates the creature from the creator. How can that gap be bridged? so that man can be in the right before God? That question would be a lament for eternity if it wasn't for the answer that scripture gives. And I'll read the answer from Romans chapter four, verse five. Romans four, five says, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The gospel shows the eternal wisdom of God in solving what would seem to be a problem that can't be solved if any of those born in the line of Adam are to be God's people. The problem comes from who God is and who we are. God is absolutely holy. We are sinners. False religions, they try to bridge this gap with man's own works. But this gap between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of the creature, it can't be bridged by man. Only a divine work can do this. You know, a phrase repeated several times in scripture is what some have called 
the core of God's covenant with man. And I'll read this covenant statement from Leviticus 26, verse 12. Leviticus 26, 12. And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I will be your God, and you shall be my people. This is the core of God's covenant with his people. This is the ultimate blessing, to belong to God himself. But how can this happen when there's such a gap between the God who is holy and man who is sinful? The gap between God and man is shown in God's own declaration of his attributes. I'll be reading next in Exodus chapter 34. Now in this section, Moses has asked of God a lofty request. Please show me your glory. God responded that man could not see his face and live, but that he would partially fulfill Moses' longing. And now we come to Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, where God discloses himself to Moses. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is God's own words, his own self-disclosure. In this self-disclosure, he proclaims two of his attributes, his mercy and his justice. He is merciful, abounding in steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But God is also just. He will by no means clear the guilty. You know, a while back we studied, when we were going through the three uses of the law, we studied the first use of the moral law of God, if you remember that, and how this use of the law, it shows us our guilt and our condemnation. The Heidelberg Catechism gives a question and answer that shows us the problem when God's mercy coexists with God's justice. The problem, of course, is not with the character of God. It's with us as sinners. The Catechism question is this. Is not then God also merciful? The answer is, God is indeed merciful, but also just. Therefore, his justice requires that sin which is committed against the most high majesty of God be also punished with extreme, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. In his plan of salvation, God himself has brought the solution for those he has elected to salvation. The solution is the work of Christ. This kind of reminds me of the Greek legend of the Gordian Knot. This legend is, is that as Alexander the Great was conquering the known world, he came to the city of Gordium. And at this city, there was an ox cart tied with this complex knot. Supposedly, there was a prophecy that whoever could untie this complex knot would be destined to rule all of Asia. And when Alexander was confronted with this complex and unsolvable puzzle, he solved it in a little bit of an unexpected way. He took out his sword and whack, he cut the knot through. The gospel tells us of the good news that 
God himself cut this Gordian knot, a puzzle that we couldn't even begin to solve. God's display of wisdom and power in the cross of Christ. The words of Psalm 85, verses 9 and 10 are fulfilled, and I'll read from that. Psalm 85, verses 9 and 10. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. God himself cuts the Gordian knot, and now God's righteousness and peace with God kiss each other. The good news of the gospel is that God's righteousness is satisfied. Even though we have sinned, we can have peace with God. The announcement of the gospel is the good news that God himself has cut this Gordian knot. The deadly problem we couldn't even begin to solve, God has conquered. In the gospel, we see both the mighty power of God and the wisdom of God. I'll read next from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You know, when people look at the cross of Christ, the unsaved, they come to their own conclusions. They see the gospel as weak, foolish, and they prefer their own useless philosophies of life. But the saved, we have the opposite point of view. The saved are described here in verse 24 as those who are called. In other words, those who God has given the effectual call to salvation. In the cross, the power and wisdom of God are displayed to an extent that is even greater than the original creation. In the cross, in justification, God truly shows his strong right arm. It took divine strength to deliver us from sin. It took divine wisdom to cut the Gordian knot of bringing righteousness and peace together so that they kiss, as the psalmist wrote. Okay, what is justification? And I'm going to read the entire definition from the Westminster Confession of Faith. I believe I printed this in your notes. Those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins, and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, nor by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves. It is the gift of God. And that's a long definition, so we should pick through it little by little. First, the definition says that those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies. 
This wonderful divine work of justification only comes to those who are elect, once they are effectually called. And we went through those steps in the order of salvation earlier. In previous sessions, we saw that the Father elected the full number of those who will be saved before the foundation of the world by name. All of you were named by name by God before the world was among the elect. The Father gave all of you to the Son by name. The Son then, in the incarnation, was going to do the work of the cross to win these people to his kingdom, making them his bride, the church. Then, in history, in the fullness of time, for an elect person to be saved, he or she hears the outward call of the gospel, and the Holy Spirit grants the inward, effectual call to salvation. You know, many people hear the outward call of the gospel, but the Holy Spirit issues the inward, effectual call only to the elect at the time of salvation. That elect person then receives the gift of saving faith, which consists of knowledge of the gospel, assent or agreement with the gospel, and then trust in the work of Christ alone for salvation, saving faith. This saving faith, it's not a work of merit on our part. It's not like I earned anything by having faith. Instead, what is it? We covered this before. It's the empty, open hand of the destitute beggar, the extended hand to receive the gift from the rich man. Once saving faith is granted, God then justifies the sinner. The Westminster Confession says that those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies. This justification comes only to the elect at the time of salvation, the time of the effectual call. If you'd like to follow along, I'm going to be in Romans chapter 3 next. Romans 3 verses 21 and 22 to show this order of events. And the passage shows that only believers benefit from justification. Romans 3, beginning in verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Righteousness of God, this righteousness that we're speaking of, is completely apart from any attempt at righteousness by our own personal law-keeping. As verse 21 says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Verse 22 then goes on. It tells us that the righteousness of God is through faith. Is it for all? No, it is for all who believe. When the Westminster Confession says that justification comes only to those who God effectually calls, it's just mirroring what we see here in Romans. It is not for all, but for all who believe. Justification is not granted to the whole world. You know, people like to think that God will simply overlook everyone's sins at the last day and throw open, throw open heaven's doors to everyone, except, well, maybe for Hitler and that guy who cut me off on the freeway this morning. Now, that philosophy is kind of like saying that all dogs go to heaven. But justification is not granted in a shotgun approach where everyone benefits. I'm going to read further in Romans to show us that justification is not some separate action where 
everyone receives of it. This time I'll be in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This passage in Romans describes what we could call a golden chain of salvation. Justification is one of those links in that chain, a very important and critical link. The chain begins with those whom he foreknew, then he also predestined. Not everyone is part of this golden chain. It is those who are foreknown of God and predestined in eternity past who benefit. Then the golden chain continues in verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. This is the effectual call, the irresistible call to saving faith given only to the elect. Then those who he called, he also justified. Not only does Paul here in Romans limit the golden chain to the elect, but he also gives an unshakable hope, a firm expectation to, thus, to, to those of us who are the elect, a firm expectation. This is because the final link in the chain is those whom he justified, he also glorified. Justification comes only to the elect, but once justification is granted, it is irreversible. Justification will, without a doubt, lead to glorification. Spurgeon had this to say about the unbreakable nature of this golden chain. He, he said, the portals of heaven stand open for thee. Don't think that you can fail of, enter, of entering into rest. If he has called you, nothing can divide you from his love. Distress cannot sever the bond. The fire of persecution cannot burn the link. The hammer of hell cannot break the chain. Westminster Confession then says in those first few words, he also freely justifies. These words tell us two important things. This step in the ordal salutis, justification, is done by God alone. Yes, it comes through saving faith, but as we've covered before, that faith is what we call an instrument. It's like, once again, the poor, destitute beggar stretching out his empty hand to receive the gift from the rich man. His hand is empty. He has nothing to offer. The poor man brings nothing. It is God who does the action of justification. And then the second thing that this says, he also freely justifies, tells us that justification is given by God to his people without cost. Justification is free. If you'd like to follow along, I'll be next in Romans chapter 3. In this chapter, Paul has given the evidence that all of mankind, both Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. If left to our own efforts, we'd be hopeless. But then Paul comes with the good news, the news that God himself freely provides the remedy. 
Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 25. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. The good news begins in verse 21. Although we have sinned, we can have the righteousness of God, a righteousness that's not from our own resources, because we have nothing to bring. It comes to us apart from any law-keeping of our own, because we haven't kept the law. It's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. This wonderful action of God toward us comes through faith as the instrument, not through our works. Verse 24 tells us that we are justified by God's grace as a gift. And that's what we're focusing on at this moment, the gift. Justification is a gift, purely of God's grace. For those who respond to the gospel with saving faith, for us poor beggars who hold out our empty hand to the rich man. And now we come to the next part of the definition in the Westminster Confession of Faith. The confession tells us this justification is not God infusing righteousness into us. The confession states this because the Roman Catholics held to the idea that in justification, God infuses righteousness into us. This would be like a car that won't start because of a dead battery. And someone comes along, nice guy, gives your car a jump start. The car with the good battery is infusing power into your dead car. So now your dead car can then get going under its own power. Infusing righteousness would be like God gives us enough righteousness to get us going so that at this instant, the point of justification, well, we now have a righteousness of our own. Then God forgives sins based on this jumpstart of righteousness that he poured into us. This infused you know, charge of virtue, of righteousness, then becomes the cause of our salvation. Then, when we appear before God the judge at the great day of judgment, we can, in some sense, point to our own native righteousness as a reason for being admitted to heaven. The Roman Catholics do bring grace into the picture, but as a jump start to get us going toward building our own merit. Once God gives us the jump start of the infusion of righteousness, it's to some degree dependent on us from now on whether we'll maintain justification. In this view, whether we stay justified depends on how well we overcome sin, do good works, and bring ourselves merit for eternal life. Under this system, a justified person can lose justification, not only through unbelief, but by committing what they call a mortal sin. And if one commits a mortal sin, now you have to reclaim justification through the sacrament of penance. Under the Roman Catholic understanding, that makes justification partly dependent on us. 
that infusion of righteousness, it gets poured into us. Then God's verdict of not guilty is because of righteousness that's inside us rather than us being dependent on a righteousness that's not ours, but is outside us based on the righteousness of Christ. Any righteousness that we could possibly bring at the moment of salvation, whether it's good works we imagine we have, or so-called infused righteousness that's within us, that can't stand before the judgment throne of God. The only righteousness that leads to eternal life is perfect righteousness. If that righteousness were within us, it would have to be perfect and it would have to be complete. It would have to be more than a jump start for a dead battery. Instead, what God does in justification is a legal action, a legal action. When we are justified, we benefit from a change in legal status. And there's a word for this. And you may sometimes run into this word when you read about God's action of justification. And that word is forensic. Forensic. What does forensic mean? When something is forensic, it means that it's related to a law court. Related to a law court. Something is forensic when it's part of a legal proceeding. You know, sometimes I'll watch old TV show reruns, and one that we see occasionally from, I think, around the 1980 or so, was called Quincy M.E. Quincy M.E. M.E. stands for medical examiner. Quincy was a medical examiner who tended to get involved in murder cases, and he'd work with the police to solve crimes using his medical knowledge. And the character of Quincy was a forensic pathologist. In other words, in these TV mysteries, he determined the cause of death then his conclusions were used as evidence in a law court. That TV character was an example of something that is forensic. Forensic means something legal, associated with guilt or innocence, punishment or setting free, based on the declaration of the judge. When an elect person is justified, God is not looking at someone seeing that they now have righteousness in themselves, then just agreeing with you know, the fact that they're righteous. I look at you, I see that you have righteousness in yourself. Eh, okay, I, I, I've looked you over, I see that you are righteous. God is making a legal declaration. God the judge is declaring something forensically, the courtroom result of a legal transaction. The idea that God is looking at someone who has you know, some righteousness in himself and agreeing he has righteousness, that's proven false. By Romans chapter 4, verse 5, which is what I'll read next. Romans 4, 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. In this passage, Paul gives us good news. In Christ, God justifies the ungodly. Justifies the ungodly. Jonathan Edwards put the good news like this. He said, God, in the act of justification, has no regard to anything in the person justified as godliness or any goodness in him, but that immediately before this act, God beholds him only as an, un, as an ungodly creature, 
so that godliness in the person to be justified is not so antecedent to his justification as to be the ground of it. And we need to translate that a little bit into more modern language. In other words, just before God does the action of justifying us, God sees our status as inherently ungodly. That's our reality just before justification. That's what we bring to the table, our sin and our ungodliness. Because of this, the foundation of God justifying us can't be found in us. We were ungodly. But God in Christ justifies the ungodly. When God justifies, it is a forensic act. It is the judge bringing the gavel down, bang, and declaring, you are righteous. This is a legal declaration by the judge, which is what forensic means. It doesn't mean that we brought any righteousness to the table ourselves. It doesn't mean, like Roman Catholicism holds, that God gives us some righteousness as a battery jumpstart, then leaves the rest of justification up to us. God, as the judge, bangs that gavel, so to speak, and makes a judicial declaration over us in justification. That's what we mean by justification being a forensic act. It is a judicial declaration. The words that we find in both Old Testament Hebrew and New Testament Greek for justify mean to judicially declare righteous. The theologian Gerhardus Voss explained that when these original Hebrew and Greek words are used, it means to make a judicial declaration that someone is righteous. One example in scripture where we see justification being granted by God's decree is in Isaiah chapter 53. That's where I'll be next. I'll be in Isaiah 53 verse 11. This chapter is a grand prophetic portion pointing to the Messiah. Isaiah 53 11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Accounted righteous. In the ESV translation that we're using, we see the words make many to be accounted righteous. In the New American Standard, it's translated will justify the many. Now, another passage that speaks of the forensic nature of justification is where I'll be next is in Psalm 143, 143. In this psalm, David is pleading for mercy. In his plea, David uses language of the courtroom. I'll read from Psalm 143, verses 1 and 2. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. David pleads for mercy. Mercy is what we need. He acknowledges that no one living is righteous before God. The mercy that David pleads for, for what, what he needs at that moment is for God to not enter into judgment with him. This is language of the courtroom. It's forensic language. 
The fact that our justification before the judge is forensic, a legal declaration, is good news indeed. This means that our justification is instantaneous rather than a process. Our justification is an act by God alone, since as ungodly people, we can't bring anything. The fact that justification is forensic, or the declaration of righteousness by the judge, is also shown by its opposite, condemnation. You know, I've been on jury duty more than once, more than I would like to be. When the trial is over, and the jury goes to the deliberation room, one of two outcomes will come out of that room. Guilty or not guilty. A judge in a courtroom can make one of two declarations, not guilty or guilty, righteous or condemned. These two forensic outcomes are shown in Romans chapter 8, and that's where I'll be next, in Romans 8. Now, in this section of Romans 8, Paul is writing of the security in salvation we have in Christ and that we cannot be separated from the love of God. Paul begins with a, a rhetorical question, a question where the answer should be apparent. If God is for us, who can be against us? I'll read from Romans chapter 8, verses 32 to 34. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Once one of God's elect has been justified, no one can bring a charge against that person. All the powers of earth and the devil cannot bring a charge that endangers the forensic declaration of righteousness. Why? Verse 33 tells us why. It is God who justifies. There is no courtroom superior to God's courtroom. And for an elect person, at the moment of justification, God's gavel has already announced righteousness. There is nothing else to be said. Even in our own courtrooms, a person can't be tried twice for the same crime. God will never reverse his own forensic declaration. In verse 34, it goes on with the rhetorical question, who is to condemn? Since Christ Jesus is the one who died, to win our justification, there can be no condemnation. This lines up with what Paul has written a few verses before in chapter 8, verse 1, where he wrote, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The terms justification and condemnation are both forensic terms, terms from the courtroom. If you're in the courtroom, and you're in the defendant's chair, either verdict, justification or condemnation will overshadow the rest of your existence. The Greek word translated condemnation not only means a judge's pronouncement of guilt, but a determination of punishment as well. The condemnation is a death sentence. But Romans 8 verse 1 changes everything. 
because it is God who makes the declaration of righteousness from the judge's bench, it is impossible for the sentence of condemnation to ever be a threat to us ever again. There is therefore now no condemnation. But that combination of words, therefore now, is emphatic. Nothing remains to be done. All has been accomplished by Christ. Because all has been done by Christ, there is no condemnation for his people. Our justification is absolutely certain and complete at the moment of salvation. We will never be more justified than we are when the Holy Spirit grants saving faith to us. The thief on the cross, at the last moments of his life, even though he'd only live a short time after coming to saving faith, was every bit as justified as the one who has lived the Christian life for decades. You know, we do grow in Christ-likeness throughout our Christian lives, and that process is called progressive sanctification. But if you look at that listing of the ordo salutis in your notes, progressive sanctification comes after justification. Sanctification comes later in terms of the logical order of the benefits of salvation and also later in terms of time. Justification, on the other hand, happens at a single point of time when we first have saving faith. So we can speak of justification using a couple of words. It is definitive and instantaneous. Definitive means that when justification occurs, it is decisive and with authority. We really are truly justified. As far as justification is concerned, that part of the ordo salutis is done once and for all when we're first saved. Justification is also instantaneous. It doesn't happen as a process. There's no stages to it. We're justified at a single point in time when God grants saving faith to us. Now, there is a process, of course, that happens afterwards, a process where God is forming us into the image of Christ day after day. But once again, that process is a later part of the ordo salutis. Justification, this part of the ordo salutis that we're looking at now, it's not a process. It's completely God's action. And it happens instantly, and it happens completely at the point of salvation. I like how Charles Spurgeon phrased it. He phrased it this way. Justification is given to a man as swiftly as the flash of lightning. We are full of sin one hour, but it is forgiven in an instant. And sins, past, present, and to come, are cast to the four winds of heaven in less time than the clock takes to beat the death of a second. We will never be more justified than we are at the moment of salvation. But it's also good news that we will never be less justified. God will never again reconvene the courtroom, bring us into the defendant's chair, and put us on trial again. In that instantaneous point of justification, the judge has declared us righteous, never again to be in danger of judgment for our sins. I'm going to be in the Gospel of John next, in chapter 5. Gospel of John, chapter 5. Now here, in this section, Jesus is speaking of the authority as the God-man given to him by the Father. Part of that is the authority 
to judge and the authority to give eternal life. And in this section, Jesus says a word of comfort to his people, giving us absolute confidence for the day of judgment. It is a statement coming from the absolute authority of Jesus. In this one verse, Jesus speaks of the complete work of justification and the fact that it's instantaneous. John chapter 5, verse 24. John chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jesus begins this verse with the words, Amen, Amen, or truly, truly. And it drives home the point that we can base our lives and eternity, our entire eternity, on what he's about to say. Jesus then describes the one who has been granted the elements of saving faith. And you might remember from a previous study the three elements to saving faith knowledge, assent or agreement, and trust. This person that Jesus is describing, the whoever of this verse, has heard Christ's word. He or she has knowledge of the gospel. This person has also believed. They agree with the gospel and trust in it. Jesus says three things about the state of this elect person who just came into saving faith. First, he has eternal life. In the Greek, the verb tense used here is exactly as it sounds in our translation. It's in the present tense. If you believe tonight, you already have eternal life. The jury is not still in the deliberation room. The judge is not still deciding on a verdict. Secondly, he does not come into judgment. At the instant of justification, we are forever out of danger of the judgment of condemnation. There is no second justification at the final day where we're sort of like waiting for the final verdict. We come to the throne of God on the final day, and now the spotlight is on us, and there's a second justification, and there's deliberation going on. The jury is still out. That doesn't happen. There's no second justification. Third, he has passed from death to life. The Greek word translated past is in a tense called the perfect tense. And the perfect tense means that an action was completed in the past, with the full effect of the action continuing into the present. You have the action that was completed in the past, but its effect continues on. A change of state occurred because of the past completed action, and that state continues. God completed the action of justification. The verdict of righteous has been declared from the judge's bench. That verdict was issued at the instant of justification. The tense of the Greek word tells us that justification was completed, but the effect of that continues. The glorious effects that are ongoing are eternal life and not ever coming into judgment for our sins. Justification, it's not a process where you always have to wonder, am I going to make it through this process? When you believe with saving faith, when you held out, the empty hand of the beggar to receive the gift from the rich man. Justification happened instantly. The effects of it echo throughout eternity for your everlasting good 
There are teachers in the Christian community who unfortunately teach that justification is a two-stage process. And according to that teaching, we are initially justified at the moment we believe, but there's a second stage yet to come. Uh, that teaching is that the second stage happens at the day of judgment, and whether we pass that second stage depends to some degree on our works in this life. If you happen to run into that teaching of a two-stage justification, you should realize it's actually a Roman Catholic teaching that some Protestants have very unwisely adopted. Here's a quote from the Reformed theologian Francis Turretin on the falsehood of two justifications, this initial justification and then a final justification. He wrote this. These two justifications mutually shatter themselves. The first overturns the second, and the second weakens the first. For if we have been reconciled to God perfectly through the first and established in a state of favor, why is the second necessary? If the second is necessary, the first did not indeed truly justify us, and thus it will not even merit the name of justification. Turretin makes a powerful point. In this false notion of a two-stage justification, the two justifications, they're self-contradictory. They, they mutually destroy each other. If the first justification, if it truly justified, the second can't justify you more, and it's unnecessary. But if the second justification is necessary, then the first one was, was ineffective. Also, if we were to be put on trial again at the final day, then the outcome has to depend to some degree on our works. And this notion diminishes the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. This notion also elevates our own works, like our own works are so perfect that they can be somehow combined with Christ's righteousness in a mixture. It would be like Christ's righteousness applied to us is like an underpowered car trying to make it up a hill, so we're asking, would it help if I got out and pushed with our own works? When we're justified at the moment of salvation, we're not just out on bail with the final verdict from the judge still in doubt. The Puritan William Perkins wrote this against the false notion of a two-stage justification. He wrote, that popish device of a second justification is a satanical delusion, for the word of God does acknowledge no more but one justification at all, and that absolute and complete of itself. There is but one justice, but one satisfaction of God being offended, therefore there cannot be a manifold justification. Well, we're out of time for tonight, but we do have more to say about justification in the next three studies. We'll also deal with justification. We'll continue with this step in the order of salvation at the next session. Thanks for coming tonight.